0: NFC Church, thank you, Drew, uh, for your ministry to us this morning. Uh, uh, Riley Cowan uh, gets a much-deserved week off, and thank you, Drew and the band, for uh, for leading us in worship this morning. Um, We're starting a new series this week, and you may notice I'm modeling the new NVC gear here, uh, which, of course, I love NVC, and uh, I hope you'll pick up something. If you want to wear it, great. If not, that's fine, too. Just do it for a good cause. Let me explain. Uh, We've been partnering with our stuff over the years with uh, uh, an organization called Agape International Missions, uh, and they help women, uh, especially uh, young girls, get out of the sex trafficking industry. And so by purchasing this, uh, they teach them the T-shirt and textile business and how it works and how to, the business side of it, they give them a living wage and get them out. Then they take the revenue and use it to, Uh, fund things that help arrest traffickers and things like that. And so we've been partners of theirs uh, for a long time. And so every one of these things that's made, uh, keep the tag. Because on the tag, it has the name of the woman who made the shirt. Uh, When they were small time, they used to sign it. And and the woman herself would actually sign it. But they've gotten big time now, which is great because that means more goods getting done. Um, So, for instance, this is Simone. So snap a picture of it in your phone, put it on your refrigerator, put it next to your nightstand or whatever. And say a prayer for for her and for uh, uh, the women who uh, are victims of that scourge in our world. And ask that God give us uh, some role to play in helping um, end that. So uh, it's a small way in which we're able to help push back the darkness a little bit with light. And that's really what this series is about. For the next five weeks, uh, we're going to be talking uh, about what it means to do and love uh, ministry in the city. Okay? And what it means to... Try to help be a part of helping create a city that God looks down and says, With that, I am am well pleased. Now, in the Bible, when you kind of see, and we've been in the Garden of Eden a lot, and we're going to start there again today, but when things begin, everything is kind of a big blob of nothing. It's dark, it's void, it's formless. And until God uses his voice to speak into it, everything is just blah, blah, blah. It's just a big blob. And um, there's nothing to, to speak about, there's nothing to experience. There's none of us, we're not there. And then God makes the world, but He doesn't finish it, which I think is special. Uh, the fact that He doesn't just create, hey, a world full of human beings, but he t- creates two human beings. One first realizes it's not good that he be alone, gives him Eve, and then he tells them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And so they're given the task of carrying out something, that God has planned for the world. And we do that now. We are meant to kind of expand the borders of Eden, if you will. Fill the earth, subdue it until the glory of God fills the earth. And we do that by generating wise order to what we experience here on the, on the earth. And we do that to the stuff that we, as humankind, have messed up. I and mean, there's plenty of that out there. And we do that by following Jesus in every aspect of our lives. So here's how it all starts. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So before God puts his voice to work, that's all there was. Formless, empty, dark. And it's where things would have stayed if God had not imagined something better than formless, empty, dark, dark blob of nothing. So what did he imagine? Well, we get a sense of what he imagines by looking at what he creates, especially human beings who are the crescendo of his creation, those that he creates in his image. And we can look at the Garden of Eden in which he places them, where he tells them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He places man and woman in the garden, and sometimes I think what we do with the Garden of Eden is we kind of turn it into this retirement home of some kind that we were really supposed to be in. It was this nice, beautiful, paradisical place with fences and, uh, you know, golf courses or whatever You're, you, you fancy in your mind as being paradise and that we were put there to enjoy that and then when, when Eve sinned or whoever sinned, then all of a sudden we're kicked out of the garden and so now we look at the retirement village from the outside going in, which is not how the Bible sees it, okay? Now, we talked a lot about this during the Good Work series that work is a part of what God had us to do before the fall took place as well, but I want to go even further than that and just say, okay, look, Eden was not really supposed to be where all of humanity stayed forever. Eden was a starting point. I have a, I have a, uh, a journal and on the front. It's kind of for uh, creative types, and they say, it says, um, everything starts with a dot. And the idea is that if you're going to write anything, it always starts with a dot. You've got, you got to put the pen somewhere, right? So once you put it down, there's your dot, and everything starts from there. The Garden of Eden's the dot. It's the place that God starts. And he places man and woman there. And, and here's, here's why I think that. Adam and Eve are told to fill the earth. So it's hard to do that if they stay in the garden, or the Garden of Eden would have to be the whole earth at the beginning. But you don't get the sense that that's the case either. Because when they get kicked out, there's another place for them to go, and Cain is expelled, and from even further more than that. So you have these these things early on that let you know that there's a river that runs through the Garden of Eden. We're told, and then that river kind of it's there to nourish the garden, and then it splits and it goes, it turns into four rivers that go in different directions outside of the Garden of Eden to nourish other places. So you kind of get the sense that. All right, if they're supposed to multiply and fill the earth, and if God is sending water and nourishment beyond the Garden of Eden. And then you look and you kind of keep turning through your Bible and you see where it all ends up in Revelation 21 and 22, where it's not a garden anymore, it's a city. So we start in a garden and we end in a city. Now the city is not like the city we know. We know a city that's broken, broken. Uh, with all of our ingenuity at trying to do life without God in the city. And so the things that we see bear the fingerprints of what it looks like when humankind tries to do a godless version of city. But in the city of God, it's spoken of in, in glowing terms. And so God leaves the world unfinished for Adam and Eve. He doesn't populate the earth himself. He doesn't create us as perfect beings. He doesn't create us as robots without wills or tell us to sit back and relax for eternity. Instead, he gives them the task of continuing what he has started, taking the dot and continuing to go in the way that he's described to them, and God's future redeemed world and universe is depicted as a city, as Hebrews 11 verse 10 says, Abraham sought the city whose builder and maker is God. In Revelation 21, it describes and depicts the apex of God's redemption as a city, his redemption is this kind of new Jerusalem, this, this city that bears some resemblance and echoes of Eden in it. Right there in the midst of the city, as it's depicted in Revelation 21, is a crystal river. And on each side of the river, it says, is the tree of life bearing fruit and leaves which heal the nations of all their wounds. And the effects of the divine covenant curse. The city is the garden of Eden remade. It's the fulfillment of the purposes of the Eden of God. So we begin in the garden, we end in the city. So I want to talk about just the, uh, the city in general because we have, most of us have a, uh, a tense relationship or a complicated relationship with the city. A lot of us have places, well, I'd love to visit there, but boy, I don't want to live there. In fact, I was having that discussion the other day uh, with my wife. It's like, the cities that, that we, we like visiting, but I don't want to live there. And the reason we say we don't wanna live there is because we realize the thing has problems. Even America's finest city, the one in which we live, has issues. But I can be assured and you can be assured that God loves cities for one simple reason. People live in cities. Brown people, white people, Asian people, black people, God loves them all. God loves cities because he loves people and cities have lots and lots of people. And they therefore have lots and lots of brokenness And sin and lots and lots of potential. So we often think of cities as this place of dirt and danger and sin and soullessness. And that's largely because we we live in and inhabit broken cities made by man. But scripture tends to view most cities as the outcome of doing what God created us for. To be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth to the glory of God. The first city that we really read about, I mean, one that we would really call a a true city, uh, you read about in Genesis chapter 11, it doesn't go so well. And it doesn't go that well for a very simple reason. We decide we're going to try to do the city thing without God. So let's read this. Uh, This is Genesis 11 verses 1 to 4. It's short, but it gives you the crux of what's going on. Bible says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone, tar for mortar. And then they said, here's the key. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. That's what so they can glorify God. So that we can make a name for ourselves, otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So they go, All right, let's do it. Let's make a city. We got the brick thing now. We can build us a tower so that we can make a name for ourselves. And then God subsequently says, Well, if we let them do that, uh, then there, nothing will be impossible for them. But really, what it means is. They're gonna think that nothing is impossible for them. So if they're successful, then basically they're gonna be okay, great. So you can see echoes of that now, right? We do things that convince us further that we can do life without God. Hey, it's only a matter of time. We're gonna cure this virus. It's only a matter of time. We're gonna build that city. We're gonna create a perfect city. We're gonna lick everything from climate change to disease to whatever. We're gonna do it. We're gonna do it because we believe in human potential which is right to believe somewhat in that, in the sense that God put potential in humans. But the potential that we have from a biblical standpoint is God-based. It's the part, the divine spark in us, the part of us that's created in the image of God. So when I create something, when I build something, when I I work to heal something or doing whatever, that's the God part of me, the, the, the likeness of God in me doing those things. It's not my just good old nature, uh, it's not because i'm so virtuous or so this or that i'm going to make a name for myself so what god does is he scrambles the languages of the people so they can't communicate it anymore and the end of that project is there and the people scatter over the remainder of the earth but we're supposed to then going back to the garden of eden in the task supposed to seek and build cities that glorify god and that those places become places where humans flourish And the glory of God begins to spread. Places where art and creativity and wholeness and hospitality thrive. They are places that don't really resemble as much New York City or San Francisco or San Diego, but the New Jerusalem that's spoken of. The Garden of Eden remade. The city is the fulfillment of the purposes of the Eden of God. We began in a garden and then we end in a city. Now let me, bear with me here for just a little bit. We're doing some theology this morning. We're going to get a little more practical and stuff later, but you got to do this. You got to build the house with the foundation first. Um, when you look at the Garden of Eden and how God sets things up, God's purposes are revealed to us as developmental, okay? Not cyclical. You got a few cycles. Uh, we're not alive and then we're alive and then we're not alive again, right? From a, from a physical standpoint, at least. Um, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, okay? That's one of the few cycles out there. Naked eye came into this world, naked eye depart. Blessed be the name of the Lord, Job says. That, that, that's the cycle, okay? So that's a cycle, but in another way, that's not the cycle. <laughs> a person is born into this world with a soul and then lives eternally. If they're with the Lord, they, they live for eternity. So they really don't die, Jesus says. So even there, you have development, but more specifically, let's look at how we just, how human beings exist. Uh, if you look at a baby, uh, they begin. Uh, maybe playing with a couple of blocks. That's all they can handle with their little hands, and their brains aren't that developed yet. So they might get this block and that block, and then they take one, and they, they take it and put it on top of the other one. Yay, mom says, claps, and the and baby smiles and drools, and, and then they go to the next kind of phase as they grow up, then it might turn into Legos, right? It's a little more complicated. It's a little bit more uh, uh, difficult, and the child gets a little bigger. They get a little stronger. They get a little you know, a bit more uh, advanced as they go. And then maybe as they go to middle school, high school, maybe they're doing model airplanes or boats or or they're building Pinewood Derby cars if they're Boy Scouts or whatever, right? They get a little bit more advanced. Maybe when their bike chain falls off, they learn how to put the chain back on and keep riding or the trucks on their skateboard are all messed up. They know how to oil them and get the wheels working again. They learn how to advance a little bit further and then it continues to grow until all of a sudden now we're very comfortable with building big things. And now we're building skyscrapers. And like these guys on the upper left up here, we're just chilling thousands of feet in the air, enjoying life, smoking our cigarettes, having our lunch while we sit out there on the top of the Empire State Building or whatever. No beer, no whatever. Or we learn to build like these buildings down here in the bottom center. Those are uh, one, two, three, what, seven of the ten tallest buildings in the world. Development. From two blocks, one on top of the other, to building those kinds of things. Developmental. So we have a decision to make because God's given us this incredible ability. You see it at the Tower of Babel. God goes, well, if we let them do that, nothing will be impossible for them, at least in their own eyes. And now they'll be sick terminally, potentially, from a spiritual standpoint. So he leaves it up to us to decide whether we're going to fulfill his wishes here on earth or whether we're going to continue the experiment of Babel, building God-free cities in which the divine spark can be seen through energy and art and commerce, but the satanic influence is undeniable as well. And you see it in crime and homelessness, exploitation, greed. We know what the vices are. And so we get to choose because the same hands that can build hospitals can build gas chambers too. And the same human beings who can fly the space shuttle to the moon can fly planes into buildings. And all that changes is here. Is God with us? Is God going to be a part of this thing or not? Are we going to do Babel? or Are we going to do New Jerusalem? Which one of these two are we going to aim at? So God has left it up to us to decide. We get to choose. Humankind... Uh, has been dabbling with this experiment all the time, and I think Christians, rightfully so perhaps, have really struggled. They've had a tension with the city because Christians are supposed to uh, flee sin. They're supposed to to not develop a real comfort. They're not supposed to play with it like Plato or something like that. They're supposed to take their holiness very seriously, but I think the mistake that gets made is in one of three attitudes toward the city. Uh, These are from pastor and theologian Tim Keller. He put it really well, so I'm just going to pick his three words. One is romanticize. Some romanticize the city, and they often use the language of loving the city, et cetera, et cetera. but it might be more accurate to say that they love the experience of the city. They like the cool restaurants. They like the coffee houses. Uh, they like plays. They like music. They, they like beautiful buildings and, and cool hotels and culture and things like that, but they don't put the time and the effort into supporting the life and the health of the city. They just tend to remain only in the cool and sophisticated parts, They want to be in the gas lamp district, but not the East Village. You know what I'm saying? Um, They want to be on Grand Avenue, but not behind the buildings on Grand Avenue. Feel me? Okay, so others disdain the city. They don't come to the city, or if they have to be here, they hold their breath until they leave. They often resent the pride of the big city, what they perceive to be secular, liberal politics, or what have you. Uh, And sometimes that's warranted because there's a lot of hostility toward Christianity in a lot of cities. They may dislike the the competition, the expense of living there, the difficulty of working amidst that kind of plurality. And then there's another group that you might chalk up to indifferent to the city. They don't particularly love or hate the city. They just aren't keen on making any special investment of time or money or, or life in the city. And so they don't understand why anybody ought to pay that much attention to it or why it might ought to be prioritized in certain places. Now, each of those attitudes, okay, I would make the case, fall short. They all have a root of truth in them. But they fall short because they don't look at the whole of what the Bible says about the city. Those who romanticize the city, for instance, they forget the spiritual darkness that cities generate. They, they forget the, the power of idols of sex and money and power and Christians with that kind of naive view of cities won't be attentive to the way in which they can be seduced by the city into what uh, the New Testament calls the spirit of the age. And uh, they can also make believers not called to city living in ministry feel guilty. Like some of you right now going, oh, man, I live out in the suburbs. I hope, I'm not, I hope I still belong here. Well, of course you do. It's not for everybody. But it's got to be for some. Those who disdain the city. Forget the call to love. They forget God's reasoning with Jonah. You remember Jonah? He has one job. Do whatever God says. That's your job as a prophet. God says, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh. Tell him to repent. Jonah doesn't go, not because he has better things to do, but because he loathes Nineveh. He hates Nineveh. He had good reason to hate Nineveh. The Assyrians treated the Israelites horribly. And so he says, no, I'm not going. He gets on a boat, buys a ticket in the opposite direction. So he gets thrown overboard, swallowed by a great fish, barfed back out on the land that post-repentance. God says, now try again. Go to Nineveh and preach repentance. So that's what he does. He preaches repentance. Half-heartedly, he gives it nine words. <clears throat> Walks through. Everybody repents. The king, the animals, it says, put on sackcloth and repent. And so Jonah. Should be elated. He is not elated. He is furious with God. And he gives God a lecture. And he says, You see, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I didn't want to go. Because I knew they would repent and I knew that you would forgive them. Now do you see what you've done? And so he literally pouts. He goes and he basically takes a lawn chair up to a mountain and looks. And it says, He looks to see what would become of the city. So God decides to teach him a new lesson, and he grows up a vine over him. It's a, he creates a, a hot day, grows up a vine over him to give him some shade, and then kills the vine. And Jonah's whining about the vine, and he says, well, thanks a lot. You know, I just for one lousy bit of shade, and you take that away from me too. Here's what God says to him. He goes, should I not have compassion? He says, you're all worried about this vine that you didn't plant, you didn't create it, or do anything. Should I not have compassion on the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left? Now, he's not saying that Jonah should love urban life and experience. He's saying, how can you, as my prophet, fail to be moved by the size of their great spiritual need? How can you say that you have my heart and you speak for me when you don't care about 120,000 people over here who are damned if They don't. And you use your office as prophet to withhold the truth from them because you don't like them? Jonah, does that sound right to you? And then you have those who are indifferent to the city, and the shortcoming there is they forget the importance of the city. One writer said that cities are the accumulators of the energies of culture. That's exactly right. If Christians are not willing to live and work in the cities, then we should not complain that the culture is reflecting less and less of the Bible's wisdom. We just shouldn't. And so what God says to us in Jeremiah 29, he's going to tell Jeremiah they're in exile in Babylon. And uh, he's going to encourage them to do something strange. This is in the chapter, by the way, where we do the famous passage about God having a plan for your life and uh, you know You know not the plans I have for you plans to give you hope in a future those kind of things okay, that's after this, the same chapter though this is what leads into that Jeremiah 29, 4-7 here's his advice to them in Babylon in exile this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile who carried them into exile? I carried them into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon here's what he says build houses So he says, move in, become part of the social economic fabric of the city you're living in, get married, have grandkids there. And then basically what will happen after that is that Jeremiah will say, so if that happens and you guys repent, then 70 years from now I will restore you for you know I, not the plans I have for you. Okay, but he's saying to them, settle down, pray for the city. Seek its prosperity because if, if the city wins, you're going to win too. Invest in the city that you're in. The best analogy I think we have on this planet for what how we're supposed to manage this tension between being in the world and of the, not of the world and that kind of stuff is uh, the metaphor of ambassador. So an ambassador is a person who's from a particular country, say A, but they live in B. I live in Say, I'm the American ambassador to France, and I go to France, I move in, I speak French, I move into France, I, I take on French culture, I understand French culture, I become conversant in language and the customs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but I'm still an American. That's my true home. So if you're an ambassador, you live in city B and you're fully fluent, but your home is in city A, Okay. Most Christians, in my experience, or many at least, try to live in city A and represent city A to city B. But that's not what an ambassador does. That's not the way it works. And I think it really impacts our witness. Uh, Let's say that you went to Petco Park this summer, hypothetically. You went and saw our mighty Padres play. And it was a hot day, 90 degrees. And you were stuck in the hot dog line. And you're standing there, and uh, so you're bored, and so you decide that you're going to profile. I do that sometimes. I'll get bored, and I'll be like, let's see if I can figure out where these people are from and what I can figure out about them by just staring at them. And you look, and you see a dude who uh, is there. He's uh, He's got a polo shirt, no ball cap, glasses. His polo shirt is tucked into a pair of jean shorts with a belt around him. He's wearing white socks, hiked up almost to his knees with penny loafers on. Okay, you don't have to stretch much to go. He's probably not from San Diego. Um, if you see a woman who has huge hair, same hot day, caked in makeup, uh, blouse tucked into a pair of jean shorts with a massive mom belt around him, socks, shoes that don't really go with the outfit, you also can probably go, probably not from around here. A San Diego person on that kind of day is wearing shorts. Flip-flops, T-shirt, and a ball cap. What are the women wearing? Shorts, T-shirt, ball cap, and maybe ball cap and flip-flops. That's it. That's the uniform, right? You know who's like you and who's from there and who's not. And they're visiting. And it doesn't mean that you're, like, mad that they're at Petco. You're kind of happy to show off the ballpark or whatever. But you know they're not you. And because you know they're not you, um, you might strike up a conversation with them, but it's going to be like, like you're meeting somebody from another place. Uh, I've gone to, oh, let's say social gatherings, parties, things like that, and I'll go up and I'll meet somebody at the chip bowl. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, I'm Tim. Where are you from? Escondido. And uh, you try to strike up a conversation that goes further than that and you try to find that spot you know hey you know did you, did you uh hey did you see the uh the football game the other day oh you know I, I don't follow sports oh okay not everybody does i'm thinking in my head that's okay hey you know did you uh you know do you do your do your kids go to school nearby no we we homeschool okay that's fine uh hey you know um uh you, know, I, I, you ever what kind of music do you like? Do you do you, do you listen? I, I, we don't really listen to music, or we only listen to Christian music. Okay. Um, how about how about uh, you know? I notice you're wearing. I'm wearing a Yellowstone T-shirt from the TV series or whatever. And they, I go. You ever seen Yellowstone? No, no, no. We don't watch TV. And you're kind of like. What do I talk about with these people? Like like, you want to talk about breathing or. I'm going to talk about something like that because I don't know where to go with this. But I also know if I have a conversation with a person like that at a party, it's always a Christian. Every time. That makes me kind of sad. Because it makes me wonder, it's not their bad person. They're Probably a great person. I can tell that they take certain things very seriously. That's all good. But then the question becomes, okay, how, how do Christians today make an impact on a city they appear to be terrified of or that they don't know anything about and aren't trying to learn anything about. They, they pump in all the bad stuff about the city, but they don't take the energy to try to get the good stuff from the city. They're too afraid of the people they're trying to serve or claim that they're serving. And so usually they don't try to serve them. They try to keep people from being stained by the people. Uh, the sin of the city, as though sin stops at the county line and doesn't go to the suburbs. I can tell you it does. I can tell you it does. It just morphs into something else. White-collar sin, different kinds, but sin all the same. I guess I'm coming around to the idea that if I'm going to be an ambassador and you're going to be an ambassador, then let's take the incarnation of Christ as an example. That God himself was willing to come in human form and associate with us, become known as a friend of sinners, be maligned for being a guy who ate with tax collectors and sinners, and he was okay with that, and was able to continue to live his life in full obedience to God, was tempted in every way as we were, yet was without sin. So if he's supposed to be the role model, then We perhaps, as human beings and people who love the Lord and everything, ought to make wise decisions, I'm not saying reckless decisions, wise decisions based on our own strengths and weaknesses, things that the Holy Spirit would lead us to do, points of engagement and fluency with the city that demonstrates the the love of God incarnate and that develops a level of fluency enough that we We send the message and have the emotional intelligence and spiritual intelligence to be able to to, uh, to serve and get to know people in a way uh, that makes sense. That they don't feel like they have to befriend a Martian in order to engage Christianity. The missionary mindset is I'm going to find you and I'm going to learn your culture, your language. And so I'm going to come in and I'm going to do this. And it's a demonstration that I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of of what you enjoy. I'm not afraid of your food. I'm not afraid of your culture. I'm very happy being in the middle of it all. This is Paul in Athens. It's why our church made the decision to stay here and build here as opposed to doing what most people do, which is is go find the fastest part of demographic growth nearby and buy something there and build there. It was a missional decision, a ministry decision. Christians who see uh, the earthly city that they're in as something to be afraid of and have a hard time serving it. How do, you, how do you serve people you can't stand or you're terrified of? It's very hard to do. We made a conscious decision to move in. Now, that doesn't mean they're not scared of us, that can happen. But in as much as it depends on us, we're going to try to do the Jeremiah 29 thing. We're moving in, building houses having babies, having grandkids, getting to know our city, seeking its prosperity, praying for our city, because when it wins, we win. Escondido, San Diego, Rancho Bernardo, Del Mar, La Jolla, Lemon Grove, Chula Vista, National City, all these places that people drive in for NBC or whatever, all those cities, San Diego in general, the whole thing. We're seeking its shalom. And seeking to spread the city of God within it, and to battle the city of Satan within it. And so, we are to see that though the fight between these two kingdoms happens everywhere in the world, earthly cities really are the flashpoints on the battle lines. The places where the fighting is the most intense, and the place where the war can be won, or at least key battles can be won, that help God and what he's doing in this world advance. So, it starts with you, Individually, don't always try to go change the world or fix everybody else before you start here. Am I am I really walking with Jesus? Am I really is the kingdom of God got its roots in my life on a daily basis? To where when I wake up and when I go down, I'm eating and drinking and sleeping the kingdom of God first, then it expands to the family. Before I try to solve human trafficking in Cambodia and Vietnam and, and Thailand, uh, am I am I am I teaching my own children of what it means to be? sexually pure? Am I teaching them how to not take advantage of people who, who are in need? Am I teaching them those things as I'm going forward? And then it goes to the church, which is God's plan A, like it or not, it's his plan A. That's what Jesus says. For seeking his agenda in this world. Where is plan A. There's no real plan B. It's just us. So we can argue with the wisdom of the choice, but that was the choice. And so we live on purpose. We make wise choices that further the mission of God in the world. Everything from buying a T-shirt and where we buy it to the kinds of decisions we make about who we vote for. And you're never going to hear me say who to vote for from this stage. Those of you who have been here for all 12 years, 11 years, I've never done it, never will. But who you vote for ought to be shaped by what you believe about God and what kind of world you think he's trying to create. Not what you personally feel not who you're outraged against or anything like that. The cross guides every decision you make if you're a disciple of Jesus. Every day, every walk, every step, all times. Wherever you go, workplace, voting booth, 7-Eleven, Arby's, doesn't matter. The same true north exists in a godly home. Okay, the true north is set by the cross. That's the compass. So, Make your decisions count. Not count in the city of Babel, where pleasure and comfort and self make and drive things. Make it count in the city of God, where love and peace and creativity and human flourishing bring glory to God. Because God has this vision. He gives it to the people. In Ezekiel 36, he's already told them he's going to take their heart heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Their cities are lying in ruins. And here's what he says he's going to do with their cities. This ought to be a prayer for us. Ezekiel 36, 33 to 36. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle in your towns, and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. Like the what? Like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins... Desolate and destroyed are now fortified and inhabited, then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. You see what he's trying to do? He says, Listen, when you repent, when you come back to me and I will restore your cities, people will go walking around this city that right now is looking like a big pile of rocks. And I'll make it look like the Garden of Eden. Because only God can make a city like Eden. That's a wonderful prayer for your city. God, do your thing. Use me, use our church, use my family to help that happen. So when you walk out the doors and you see the homelessness or you see the crime, you see the needles, you see the, the stuff all over the sidewalk, whatever the case may be, that's what happens when man tries to do City. But there's a whole other picture of what a city's supposed to be. And you see it right here in Ezekiel 36. And only God can make it look like Eden. There's a social experiment going on right now over in Saudi Arabia. They're building a city. Indoors. The whole thing. No cars. All renewable energy. 100 miles long. All inside. I think I'd rather go to San Quentin and live there. But... Um, that sounds awful to me to be inside for the rest of my life. It's out in the middle of the desert. You can see it pictured here, that big long glass. It's all mirrors. They're working on it. $500 billion it's going to cost. This is what they're claiming it's going to look like on the outside and inside, but I'm trying to figure out where the water for all the greens coming in. I don't know if that's astroturf, fake geraniums or whatever on the left. But it's another experiment in trying to create an ideal city without God. I'm not faulting them for the effort, but what I would just say is whatever you do, when you try to make cities, make sure that the values of that city are calibrated to what God can do to a city. That's how you get a city called Eden. Eden not how you get just the random city that does whatever. If you need to know what cities look like when we get our hands on them and God is not there, step outside. It's not hard to see. But God needs people who are not afraid and who, in fact, are willing to move in and be ambassadors. Fluent and the language and the customs of the people who are willing to be friends of sinners, and willing to do the work to see this dream of God's realized so that he might be able to say, and the people around us as the city gets rebuilt, with the people of God helping. That land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. So the next five weeks we're gonna take, we have two big emphases in how we've tried to do this over the years. One is working with kids, anything having to do with kids, how we can help the next gen, and then church multiplication and why we've picked that. And so in the next five weeks, we're gonna talk about what MVC is doing and has done over the years, and you're gonna hear from some of our people that are that we support in the field, you know, in campus ministry or church planning, or working with kids, or community partners, things like that. Uh, because It's a great illustration of what we're trying to do, and it's hard to just grind things out when you don't know really what you're doing other than, hey, I think we're trying to kind of, you know, there's some Rorschach splatter of something good up there, but I don't know exactly what's going on. My hope is you're going to be encouraged by what you see and what's happened here over the years and where we're going. So uh, I'm asking you today to begin renewing your partnership with God impact the world today here in this church under your own rooftop and you as a disciple of jesus so right now the we call this the commitment time we're going to do it at the lord's table what we call communion bread and cup Uh, we have ushers that will bring the elements to you if you if you didn't get them on the way and we do this every week at new vintage Go ahead and uh, put your hand in the air. It's no big deal. Just kind of do this if you'd like some and you didn't get them on the way in. Uh, as we do, I want to reread Ezekiel 36, 33 to 36, and offer this as a prayer. We've got a, some, some woman and child. I don't know who they are. need communion elements in the front. <laughs> um, But you know, guys, the most encouraging thing about this is that God has actually called us to this and says, you know, look, if you're willing to, to do this, you're willing to put your hand to the plow, I will use you in ways you can't even believe. And so we invite him to do that now. Let me reread this as our prayer. This is what the sovereign Lord says On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns. The ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say this land was laid wa- that laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. And the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. And Father, now as we come to the Lord's table, we remember Jesus, the one who talked of us as a city, on a hill that could not be hidden. Father, may we be that. And may each, Father, person who is here and commit themselves to following Jesus daily and recommitting their homes, Father, and recommitting as uh, so we commit together as a church, Father, to continue to, to, to do what we can, what you've put us here to do. Uh, Father, we ask for your strength and your power. We ask, Father, for your forgiveness when we've been distracted. And we ask, Father, that now as we take the bread and the cup, that your Holy Spirit abide in this room and within us and that the fruit of the Spirit would be born among us. We pray this, Father, in the name of Jesus.